Imagine taking your generosity to the next level, impacting more lives and leaving a godly legacy for generations to come. Get ideas and strategies to do just that when you listen to these personal stories from high-level kingdom champions. The Kingdom Investor Podcast showcases business leaders who have moved from success to significance, sharing how they use worldly wealth for kingdom impact. Discover how they grew in generosity, impacted more lives, and built godly legacies. You'll find motivation, inspiration, and practical steps to grow as a kingdom investor. Hello, and welcome to the Kingdom Investor Podcast. This is your host, Daniel White. Thanks for joining us as we interview Adam Griffin. Adam is the lead pastor of Eastside Community Church in Dallas, Texas. He has written several books, including the one he co-authored with Matt Chandler called Family Discipleship. Adam hosts the Family Discipleship podcast along with his wife, Chelsea Griffin, and Cassie Bryant. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to the podcast and follow us on LinkedIn. Without further ado, let's get right into the show. Hello, Adam Griffin, and welcome to the Kingdom Investor Podcast. Hope you're doing well today. Oh, hello, Daniel White. I am doing well today. Thanks for having me on. So I wanted to maybe just hear a little bit about where you're from and and uh, what you're up to this week. Well, great. Well, I am uh, originally, I grew up in Wisconsin, pretty much. I grew up around Milwaukee, but right now, and for the last 20 years, I'm from Dallas, Texas. And this week is my wife's 40th birthday. And so a lot of this week is dedicated to getting ready for that. I'm throwing her 40 hours of fun over a five-day period. And so just tons of planning and orchestrating and inviting and supplying and a lot of fun. But it's a big week in the Griffin house. That's really cool. How long have you guys been married? 13 years. So over a quarter of her life. Have you always done something that elaborate? No, but it is very typical for me to say, like, I don't know what would be a good thing. So what if I throw a bunch of pretty good things at it? You know, so like, how do you celebrate a 40th birthday? Like, what's good enough? What's big enough? Well, what if I did a bunch of things she likes over and over and over again for 40 hours? And then I feel like, okay, that, that that's probably good. So is that like foot massages or uh, compliments? That's, or, oh, okay. <laughs> that's in there. She's going to, a, a, she'll go get a pedicure with some of her friends. We'll do... We have a petting zoo coming to our house. She'll get a one-on-one date with each one of our kids. We'll get a date. She'll have a whole day of golf with some friends. She loves to golf. We have a prayer and worship night to kick off the whole thing where we'll invite a ton of our friends to come and just pray over her and worship together. And then there's it's it's a pretty rigorous schedule. We'll also go to a dine-in pizza hut. She loves dine-in pizza huts. We'll go to, uh, man, there's, there's a lot. It's going to be awesome, though, Daniel. It's going to be awesome. That is really cool. Really cool. All right, so I want to talk about uh, your journey and story and and your call to ministry and things like that. Uh, but before we do, do you mind praying just for our audience and just this time together? I'd be honored. Yeah, let's do it. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to to talk to each other today in a way that I hope is a real blessing to anybody who listens in. I pray that the listener would both receive uh, wisdom and insight as well as challenge. But I pray that those would come from you. And if it comes through us, great, God. But I know that our words will pass away and your words will not. So I pray that you would bless the people listening with something that you have for them. I'm going to pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
So Adam, would you start maybe by sharing your call to ministry? Uh, well, I feel like I've been through several calls to ministry. Uh, I think if you go back to kind of an original one, I was going through college wondering if I wanted to be in education or I wanted to be a church worker. I did not want to be a lead pastor. Um, but I found out that teaching high school and student ministry had a lot in common, but student ministry did not have to grade any homework. And so they're like, okay, if I could do that, that'd be awesome. But uh, there were, I'm not big on like the Jonah call. I don't think there was a moment in my life where God said, if you don't do this, I'm going to swallow you with a fish. I do feel like I said yes to a lot of things that I felt like the Lord had prepared me for, that I had an affinity for and an opportunity for, had affirmation from other people for, and had a like a, a, you know, a preparation that led me towards it. That could be over and over again. Most recently, and I know we'll get into this, uh, kind of the call to be a, a lead pastor, uh, planting a church. That was more specific than anything I'd had, and definitely I was more resistant as well. I feel like there's been several times in my life where I've struggled with what is the Lord asking me to do here, and most of the time, Daniel, I think it's because the way the Lord works more often uh, than we'd like to admit is that he's giving us two different things or three different things and saying, whatever you pick is fine. Just honor me. Honor me with what you do. You go to this university or this university, fine. You're going to honor me? Let's do that. You're going to play this sport or that sport? Honor me. You're going to do this career or that one? Let's do it. Work at this church or that church? Honor me with it. And so there were times where I wanted the Lord to, to give me like a Jonah call to say, it's this, not that. And instead, the Lord's just going, hey, be wise. It's, it's yes to both, but uh, no, if you're not going to honor me. And so uh, I've had a lot of moments like that in my life. I've worked at several different churches. I've worked in several different public schools. So I ended up both doing education and ministry in different parts of my life. And uh, each one of those is its own kind of unique version and story of uh, seeking wise counsel, of turning to God's word, and then of determining based on uh, kind of the, the pillars I gave you a second ago, where do I think the Lord has me next? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So would you share maybe a little bit about the vision that God's put on your heart? Yeah, well, for right now, there's several things I would say the Lord's put on my heart. One, first and foremost, I want to be a great husband and a great father. You know, husband to my wife, father to my kids, so we're clear. Uh, not father to my wife or husband to anybody's kids. But I am really delighted to have that role, to lead my family well. And then I think in, in, in life over the last five years, really six years, maybe almost seven now for this at this point, Lord called me into planting and starting a church here in Dallas. And I was resistant. I did not want to be a lead pastor, and I did not want to be a church planter. But there came a point, and the Lord's done this several times, where there are things in my life where that I wanted to do, but I didn't have the ambition. I struggle, if anything, from a sinful lack of ambition. I don't pursue a lot of things. So if the Lord wants me to do things, he, he really hands them to me. He has somebody in my life who says, I want you to go do this. And so I'm not great entrepreneurs, like entrepreneurial church planters will come in and be like, okay, you have this church. Our church is now pretty large. We're five years in and we've grown a lot. And so people assume, I think that like, oh, I had this entrepreneurial vision where it was like, I'm going to go and take over the city. And so church planters will assume that and they'll ask like, how did I, how did I do that? And be like, oh, well, didn't want to resisted kind of kicking and screaming. The Lord uh, made it really clear. This is what he had for me, but it wasn't this dream that I had to pursue that otherwise would have died if I hadn't just done enough. And so church planting came from a real specific call that we get into if you, if you want to, but it, it started with a day where I knew every, something was going to change because even the job I had was going to, was going to shift. 
And on that particular day, uh, the Lord sent two different men into my life who both offered me positions other places, unbeknownst to each other. And I went home to my wife that, that night and was like, okay, we know what we're doing right now is going to change. We have these options to go do other things. We have more options than that. And of all those options, I said, we could also, you know, plant a church. I could go pastor. And my wife was like, absolutely not. We're not doing that. I was like, oh, okay, well, that makes it easy to have an easy no, right? But that kind of haunted me. And I came back to her and said, why do you think it's so easy for us to say no? She said, well, Adam, lead pastors should want to be lead pastors. Church planters should want to plant churches. You don't want to do those things. How do you expect people to follow you if you're going, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And so... Uh, but what we discovered in, in a journey of self-exploration was like, that was rooted in fear, fear that what if, what if I planted a church and I got really puffed up and thought I was something special? Or what if we planted a church and I got really crushed and he thought I was just, I was just miserable because it failed. And, and all that was rooted in fear that puts me at the center of what God was doing instead of God at the center of what he was calling me to. So once we realized that we could plant a church and new ministry, we've got at the center of it. And it was all about Christ. In other words, if Adam Griffin were to die, if Adam Griffin were to quit, if Adam Griffin were to resign, this mission would still go. Then I was like, okay, we can we can do that. And so that was my more specific call, the more recent ministry. So we we met uh, in person at the Orlando uh, conference, the D6 conference, uh, and you spoke about burning the plow, and that really spoke to me. And I thought it would be really helpful for us to unpack that a little bit. Uh, in this in this discussion and for our audience. So would you mind maybe just recapping that conversation and kind of sharing maybe a little bit about how you've done that in your own life? Well, burning the plow is uh, a phrase we use. It comes from the story of Elisha being called by Elijah to be his kind of mentee. Elijah comes along as a prophet, throws his cloak over um, Elisha, which is where we get the phrase uh, to to hand down your mantle, to pass the mantle, to take on the mantle. Mantle is another word for cloak. And so he was being invited into like go into this. And Elisha, according to that scripture there, likely what's happening is Elisha has a very successful business, farming business. It says he has 12 plows and he's the 12th one, which is really like overseeing all the plowing going on. But when he gets this call to be in ministry, this call to be a, a prophet, basically, he takes the plow and he burns it. And he takes the cows that were pulling the plow and he roasts them and he celebrates with his family. And then he goes off and, and goes. And so we talk about burning the plow is the idea of not necessarily even a bad thing, just the thing that you have been doing or the thing that your life is dedicated to, or in the case of idolatry, the thing that your life's dedicated to that it shouldn't be. That you say, I'm going to burn that I'm, because I believe God has asked me to do something else. That's going to have no more, no more power over me. In fact, uh, you know, we talk about how Elisha could have just said, I'll have somebody else plow and see if maybe one day I'll come back to this. Or he could have said, I'll put my plow in storage. And then one day it'll be there if, if profiting doesn't work out, if being a prophet doesn't work out, if it doesn't profit to be a prophet, so to speak. But he doesn't do that. He burns it. And he says, there's no way to go back. It's kind of like the burn the ships. There's, there's no retreat. Here I go. I am all in, full send, which I think all in was the, the theme of the conference we were at. And that's why, we, that's why I picked that scripture. Just being all in on the call we have on God's life. So for instance, in my life, if you're talking about examples, one of the examples I gave at the conference is a lot of times youth sports where I live will be kind of king. Youth sports is how you determine your schedule. Youth sports is where we're going to be when. 
And um, so people will skip church, but they won't skip youth sports. People will skip, you know, class, but they won't skip youth sports. Like that is, you do not miss that. And for our family, we said, you know what? Uh, sometimes we're going to miss youth sports because we're going to do stuff as a family. We're going to, well, certainly if there's a church event, we're going to miss our youth sports team. If there's a vacation we want to take, it's going to be okay if we miss some youth sports. Or for us, we had a whole season this this spring where we said, you know what? Instead of our kids playing baseball as baseball players, uh, we're going to sign them up for a buddy league where they went and they were uh, buddies to a kid who had special needs while the kid who had special needs played baseball. And for us, that was burning the plow and saying, uh, we, we're not going to go, we're not going to make you sports king. We're going to try to serve one another. We're going to go after that. Or burning the plow can also look like saying there's uh, other things I want to do with my time, but there's something better I should do with my time right now. So there's a lot of nights where I'd love to go exercise and go to sleep, but I will absolutely read the Bible, pray and sing with my kids every night. We burn the plow nothing else gets in the way. If we have if we have friends over at our house and they're there at the time when our kids go to bed, we invite our friends into it. We say, hey, we're going to put these kids to bed, but would you join us in reading, praying, and singing before we say goodnight to our boys? And Why? Because, man, we'd rather tell our friends to leave than, than not study the Word together with our kids. Like, we will, we'll burn that plot. Not a person. <laughs> I'm not going to burn a person. And that's not what I'm saying. But I think you understand what I'm saying. There's, there's a priority list for us. And the Lord is coming first. And the call in my life is coming first. My wife even asked me, I just got back from a sabbatical not long ago, right after that conference we went to. And my wife asked me on the conference, she said, how much money do you think someone would have to offer you to leave pastoring this church? And I told her, there is not a dollar amount I can imagine in this world. If somebody offered me a billion dollars and said, I will pay you to do something else that I can imagine saying, no, I'm going to forsake what the Lord called me to, to pursue that money. I just wouldn't do it. So every other option in my life, I've said, that's a, that's a burned plow for me. I'm doing this until the Lord calls me to do something else. And it's not a matter of, of financial gain that's going to do it. It has to be the Lord saying, no, it's, it's clear that the ministry you have here is dried up, and I want you to do something else instead. So that's the idea. I hope those examples are a little bit helpful. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, you? I think it does. And it just reminds me of something I read this morning about how important it is for us to commit to something versus just being interested in doing something. Because if somebody's interested in doing something, they're going to do it until it's not convenient. And if you're committed, you're going to do it no matter what. Yeah, that's good. So can you maybe share some other examples of how you've seen this work well in other people's lives or how they've maybe burned the plow well in, in their business or in their career? Sure. I, I, I want to caveat, though, that I've seen this go poorly, too. There are people that in the pursuit of a dream, they've said, well, this is what I want to do with my life. And so they quit their job or they I've even seen people forsake their family saying like, oh, there's something better for me. They want an upgrade. So they leave their wife or they leave their husband. And this is this is not what I'm talking about. This is not whatever your dream is. Pursue it because it must be from the Lord. Every whim in your heart is not the voice of the spirit. Our hearts are deceitful. And so we have to discern these things. But the way I've seen this go really well is, uh, man, I can tell you stories of business people in our congregation who've told me about being in very successful businesses, but they were really rooted so much in money-making at all costs that it forsook things like morality and said, we're going to make choices that are not just morally gray. I don't believe really in that, but saying like, no, we're going to take advantage of clients. We're going to take advantage of laws. We're going to take advantage of loopholes in order to pursue greater profits. And people here that said, I don't want to be a part of that. Um, I'm going to I'm gonna say, I, I am not going to pursue money over morality. And I'm not going to assume money over my God. 
And so they burned the plow and said, that, that's behind me. That's no longer part of my life. I'm done. And other people, too, that you can point out that have done, I think, uh, the burning the plow in the sense of like, this is a good thing. It's a it's a really good thing, but we're just not going to we're not going to do it anymore. Obviously, youth sports come to mind for me as uh, and education comes to mind for me. There are people that have said, you know, it's kind of a sacred cow to say after high school, you go to college and uh, families that can afford college and kids that are ready for college. Some of them have said, you know what, I'm going to burn the plow on keeping up with all the kids my same age and take a gap year and go and learn. I'm going to go backpack Europe or I'm going to go work in a missions agency or I'm going to go get a job. You know, so just because the culture that I've been a part of says this is what it's good to do next, I'm going to take the Lord's word for it that maybe pursuing him a little bit and maturing a little bit is what I need before I just go straight into college. So they said, I'm going to burn that plow. Certainly, I I know people that have been dating and had relationships where they really wanted to be married. And so they were trying to make it work, even though that relationship was sour, even though that relationship was hard in a way that, that should have led to them breaking up. And they said, well, we don't want to break up because what if I have to start over with somewhere with someone else? We've already been together for years. We've had to advise them to go, relationships aren't bad things, but saying no to a relationship is, is a good thing because it's the answer that we've been looking for. Is this or is not this going to lead to marriage? And so whether it's relationships or jobs or it's schooling, or whether it's hobbies or whether it's a, a dream of writing a song or writing a book or making a movie, there's times sometimes where we need to say, hey, that needs to die because I want to honor the Lord my whole life. And I'm certainly seeing that in a lot of places. Yeah, that's good. So what are some maybe common plows that you have seen? Okay, good. Uh, common plows. I mean, I just listed some of them. I would think idolatrous ones would be health and wealth to say it's not bad to be healthy. It's, it's not necessarily evil to have money, but to dedicate your life to preserving your life longer in a way that forsakes the other more important things in your life. Uh, somebody who restricts their diet so much that it becomes a disordered eating is, is on the same spectrum as somebody who pursues coping through food so much that it becomes a disordered eating. And both of them need to forsake what they've done, which is saying uh, the way my body looks is God or uh, the way I feel when I eat is God. And so we have to forsake those things. The pursuit of uh, finances. Uh, you know what's a common one, Daniel, that I see a lot? I talk a lot with parents. You know this. I'll see dads that justify how much they work away from their home as the way I love my family. But really what they're doing is trying to get away from their family, being away from their family in a place that affirms them and builds them up like their office or like the place of employment. And so sometimes we need to advise dads. I get it that your promotion may not happen. Your bonus may not happen. Or even your colleagues, your boss may look down on you for working less. But gosh, your family is so much more important than that. And you cannot forsake, burn the flower of your family in order to serve your job in the name of your family. You just can't do it. It's a lie that we fall for a lot. So I think that's a that's a really common one is in America, even in the even in the church, workaholism is something that we celebrate and pat people on the back for and say, wow, look how hard you work. And we should be instead concerned saying how much has work become uh, an idol to you. Do you have a way that we can maybe or a question that we can ask ourselves to help identify if wealth has become that plow or that idol? Sure. There's a couple of things. I think it, take a look at your calendar and see like, what am I dedicating my life to? It, take a look at, um, imagine, it'd be harder to actually do this, 
but imagine you had a transcript of every word you said in a day. And then imagine you had a transcript of every thought that passed through your head in a day. And go, if somebody, a third party, non-impartial person, was to look at that transcript of your thoughts, that transcript of the things you say, and to look at your calendar, and you say, what would that person say are the most important things in your life? And they would probably look at your life and go, man, you spend a lot of time at work, or you spend a lot of time exercising, you spend a lot of time with your kids. Okay, what are the words that come out of your mouth that, that tell you what, what you think about those things? Is it I'm so stressed at work? Is it I can't wait to get home to my kids? You go, oh, man, that's, that's something great to hear. Is it, man, I never say something encouraging or complimentary about or to my family. It, it just, I'm seeking that affirmation at work. I'm seeking the next promotion. Michael, okay, well, it seems like your life, your priority, if you gave a pie chart to your heart, you're giving a lot of it to this. And that's not necessarily bad, but let's observe whether or not it's taking the place of something that should. When, when God talks about in Deuteronomy 6, what Jesus would say is the most important commandment. When he talks about our love for God, he doesn't say, I want God to have the greatest percentage of your heart. 50, like if everything else gets 10%, he gets 11. He doesn't say, I want him to have the majority of your heart. 51%, everything else can divide up the 49% that's left. What the Bible calls us to do is to love God with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole strength. In other words, every love that we have should be through that love. It's because I love my God with my whole heart that I have this job. It's because I love my God with my whole heart that I feel this way about my kids. It's because I love my God with my whole heart that I want to serve my wife. And if instead I'm thinking about it differently, then I start to pile up idols and competing affections for uh, for God. And God, um, God should not be competed with in the human heart. The human heart that is his should be all his. And anything we see less, then it needs to be sacrificed. I think of too, if I can think of scripturally, if you think about an Exodus, probably the most memorable um, depiction of an idol is the golden calf in the book of Exodus, right? A physical idol that somebody said, this is our God. Do you know that came about 40 days after Aaron sat down with God and dined with him? Like the elders of Israel, Aaron sitting there with Moses saying, wow, this is the God who rescued us from Egypt. But less than two months later, just a little bit more than a month, Aaron made himself a golden statue of a cow and said, actually, this is our God. And you go, it does not take much for the human heart to say, it's been too long or I've been far removed from an experience with my God before we replace him with something else. And so I think it's a, it's a, Calvin talked about how, John Calvin talked about how our hearts are factories for idols. It's very easy for us to pursue our affections, pursue our dreams, be entrepreneurial in a way that forsakes our God. But what we want to do is take all the good, righteous things and say, man, I, I pursue those things because I am pursuing my God. Yeah, I think one of the most powerful exercises or one of, yeah, one of the most powerful exercises I've done is I've looked at, okay, you know, at my funeral, what are the things that are actually going to matter and who, who is there that I care about and what are they going to say about me? And it really helped me to think about, okay, what are the priorities in my life? What, what does matter? And then am I actually investing my time in a way that, in, that invests in those different areas, if that makes sense? And so it was really pretty shocking in you know, looking at the hours in the week that I in, invest in those areas and how skewed it is. And of course, you know, it's never going to be 
balanced across the board, but it's like, you know, if it's like, oh, wow, you're spending, a, you know, a hundred hours at this and you're spending, you know, 10 minutes at this, it's like, okay, <laughs> if they're both priorities or, or both key areas of your life, like that's, yeah. So. Well, people will tell me sometimes they don't know how to be creative in the way they love their wives or the way they lead their families. But the truth is, if your boss gave you an assignment and said, I got to have you figure this out by this weekend, you'd spend time figuring it out. And so if you think about the Lord is not our boss, he's our heavenly father. He didn't portray himself as like, I will be your employer. He said, I will be your father, but he loves and delights in you. And he's asked you for something, just to lead, lead your family, lead your life. And in order to do that, it might take sitting down for 10 or 20 minutes and going, how am I going to do this? How can I be creative with this? What does my family love? What do I love? And how do I pursue that together with them? And it doesn't, it doesn't take a whole lot of applying ourselves. We just, we're, we make excuses really easy for things we don't want to do. Do you have any other tools, tips, or tactics on how to burn the plow or how to identify the plow? Um, I would say people, uh, people who know you best, asking them to speak into your life and giving them permission to do so. So if you're married, hopefully your spouse, whatever, you should be hopefully in a local church in a context where you are known and other people know you and giving them permission and then asking them the question to say, do you see anything in my life that seems like it's competing for my ultimate affections for the Lord? Do you see things in my life that are disordered, things that are good, that are not uh, rightly prioritized? And having somebody that you trust who's wise enough, be it a counselor or a mentor or be it a friend or a community group or spouse and say, hey, will you please just observe my life and tell me if I'm, I'm setting the thermostat of my heart correctly or if I'm too much this or too little that. I think that'd be good. All right. Now I want to tap into some of your wisdom from hosting the Family Discipleship Podcast. And maybe can you share just a few things that you've learned through that process and, and specifically speaking to fathers and, and how can we be more godly fathers and, and lead our families well? Man, I've loved getting to do the Family Discipleship Podcast, and it's a good question because I have learned a lot. I've learned a lot from our guests. I've learned a lot from the things we had to read to get ready for episodes. I have learned a ton. Some of the things that stick out to me is um, uh, John Tyson, who who said to us, do whatever you can, but don't do what you can't. And I thought that was really helpful. And then he said, he followed it up with, you can do more than you think you can. And it was just very simple language to say, like, we make excuses a lot to like, oh, I can't do this, I can't do that. Well, then just do whatever you can. The expectation is not that you're going to do the things you can't. But remember, you can do more than you think you can. Then similar, I had a conversation with Ray Ortland on there, and Ray was such a gift of a dad to me. He talked about his godly dad and how he's been a father in retrospect compared to his father. And he said, man, in leading your household, it doesn't have to be complicated. Get your kids to church every weekend. He's like, start with that. We sometimes think of like, oh, it's got to be, I've got to preach this incredible sermon to my children. He's like, man, read your Bible together, pray together, be a, be a Christian around your kids. Start by just, let's just go to church. And if that's not a priority for your family, let's change it. And I think part of that is because I spend so much time thinking about family discipleship that it ends up being complicated. It ends up being uh, maybe eventually convoluted. There's just a lot to consider and a lot to think about. And these men were like, hey, it doesn't have to be. Uh, when we asked John Tyson what he would do different now that his son has graduated high school, he said, um, I would go back and I'd be more intense. 
And I'll tell you, John Tyson is pretty intense. <laughs> like he was doing five day a week, early morning, get up early discipleship with his son. And he said, if I had to do it over again, I think of what's one more show that I could have not watched and I could have spent with my son. What's one more day that I could have skipped work and spent it with my son? What's one more vacation that I could have invited or one more work trip I could have invited him along on? That kind of stuff of just like you don't get those times back. Every every moment you have with your kids is one less than you'll ever have again. So it's a non-renewable resource. And so take full advantage of them as they come along. But yeah, I'd also say a lot of the reading that I've done, Charles Spurgeon is a hero of mine and he has written so much that's good and godly, but certainly a lot about being a father. But one of the most challenging things his wife wrote about him in his, I know it's its called his autobiography, but his wife wrote a lot of it after he passed away. And she talks about how they would go into the study after their dinner and he would lead them in family worship. And she said it was often that we would, that he would start to cry and weep for our family as he prayed for us and the rest of us would weep along with him. And I, man, I just go, man, my family has never said that about me, that, that, that my prayers led them to tears, not in the best <laughs> sense anyway. Uh, but I, it's just a challenge to go, man, there's just ordinary men out there that aren't heroic. James said that Elijah was a man just like one of us. And yet when he prayed for it to stop raining, it stopped raining for three three years. And I think about that and I go, man, that's, that is not out of reach for me to dream, to be faithful to my God my whole life long, to pursue it, and then to achieve it. Uh, Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, at the very end of this very long speech, he says, what I'm commanding you to do today, it's not too hard for you. And he ends that section by saying, hey, what I'm telling you, you can do it. And I think, what a great end to a motivational talk. But after he's repeated the Ten Commandments, what we call the Shema, the love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, when he said, like, care for your own soul diligently and then teach these things to your kids, he ends all that with, and this is not too hard for you. You can do it. It's not far away. It's not something somebody has to go and find and bring back to you. It's like, it's right here. He says it's in your mouth and it's in your heart. Just love that. So if there's like, I know you get a lot of entrepreneurial people who listen, that would be like, I would think that's life verse for you. I think it's Deuteronomy 30 verse 11. Just what I'm telling you to do today, it's not too hard for you. And he's not trying to motivate them saying, you can do this. He's doing it Matthew 11 style, where it's Jesus saying like, the reason this is not too hard for you, the reason the burden is light is not because you're so capable. It's because it's a yoke with me and the heavy lifting is done by your God. The heavy lifting of what God has called you is done in Jesus Christ. Therefore, it's not too much for you. Like John says in 1 John, he says, God's obedience to God is not burdensome. You can do this. Anyway, that's well, what that just of. makes me think about back at the beginning of the episode when you were talking about really almost hesitantly planting the church and really having, you know, being yoked with God, things go better. And, and it's like the wind is to your back. And when you're just striving on your own, it's like, man, you, you know, put in those 80 hours a week and, and you, you know, grind and you work and you're like, wow, okay, I've made some progress, but it's just completely different when you're walking with the Lord and, and, and he's carrying the load and you're, you're there with, yeah. with him fellowship and, and obeying 
Well, let me say something to that too, because I love the analogy you just used that the wind's at your back. I've been thinking about this lately. I have a son who's an aerospace, or son, sorry, a nephew who's an aerospace engineer uh, at college right now. And we were talking about tailwinds and headwinds. And there's a great book by Brian Loretz uh, called The Dad Difference. And it's his analogy he uses like the difference between like the resistance of a headwind and the, the help of a tailwind. And it's really brilliant. But my nephew told me something, and this will be great for you and for your podcast listeners. He said, if you want a plane to take off, you can't only have a tailwind. It's not a sailboat. You have to have a headwind in order to get lift. That's why a plane goes fast, as it has to have enough air going over the wind or going over the wing in order to get lift. It's not, it's not just, hey, it's otherwise we just build sailboats that fly. We don't, you have to have a headwind. In other words, a plane requires a, a form of resistance, a form of something it's heading into that's gonna it's gonna blow towards it. And so there is going to be, if you have a righteous dream, it does not mean you have an easy dream. If you have a good goal, like leading my family, it doesn't mean it's going to come simple. A headwind is what it's going to take potentially to say, this is what it takes to get me off the ground. I will face resistance. And as long as I know I'm on a righteous path, I'm okay with resistance. I'm okay. If I'm on the Lord's path, I'm, on the, I'm doing the Lord's will, I'm fine with it. And then a tailwind is super helpful too. Because it does like it gives me momentum, it keeps me going. But I have to have, I have to have some form of resistance. Otherwise, uh, otherwise I can't get mm, off the ground. Yeah, I like that. That's good. Yeah, because you know they always take off into the wind if at all possible. All right. So, what is your number one encouragement for dads? Number one encouragement for dads. Yeah, you got to have a list of these. I do have a long list. Here's the thing. You know how hard it is to be a dad or a mom. We probably talk about it like it's harder than it actually is, but it is pretty hard. And part of it is because the encouragement, watch this. I could say something to you like, hey, be super intentional in your kid's life. But I could say also, hey, fathers, don't be too over-involved in your kid's life. And you know this. We've talked about this. There's a million principles for parenthood that it's like, don't do too much, but also don't do too little. And that's why it's so hard to be a father. It's it's not only all those things where you go like, hey, make them, let them make their own choices, but not too many other choices, not too soon. But let them make them sometimes. But if they st- make a wrong choice, stop them some of the time. But other times, don't stop them because they need to face the natural consequences of their actions. And so there's there's not only that, but as a father, you also face the potential resistance of your children who don't want to do what you know is good for them or what you're asking of them. That also makes fatherhood hard. Then combine that with the cultural expectations, your spouse's expectations, the Lord's expectations. And you know what you find out? You will never be a perfect father. But in order to be a good father, the expectation is not that you be perfect. It's that you demonstrate to your kids what an imperfect man does as he follows a perfect God. So the best fatherhood advice I could give is not to just accept your flaws and say, this is just who I am. No, to repent of your flaws and say, isn't it good that God is better? And then to pursue God with everything you got. That's the the best advice I have is that you already have a perfect heavenly father. I love in Matthew where Jesus says, if you a father who's evil know how to give good gifts, how much more so does your father in heaven? And I think of that how much more so phrase all the time. If I love my kids, which I do, how much more so is my perfect heavenly father love my kids? If I want to delight my kids, how much more so much my must my perfect heavenly father. I want to delight my kids. Now I make mistakes, 
but I know my kids make mistakes and I can forgive my kids. If I can forgive my kids, how much more so must my heavenly father be able to forgive me? He's perfect. He's actually told me an unpardonable amount of debt has been forgiven for me. And so I should likewise forgive others. He's going like, I've set the example. This is how a perfect father does it. Now you go and do likewise. So I would say, hey, it's not too, not too hard for you because the Lord carries it with you. We talked about that earlier. But you have a perfect heavenly father. You keep pointing your kids towards him and you keep pointing your life towards him. That's the best advice I can mm, give. That's very encouraging. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to share before we jump into the mentor minute? Let's do that mentor minute. We got All right. this. Who is the most influential person that you know and how have they impacted you? I would say most influential person I know might be different than the person who's had the biggest influence on All right, me. share both of them. Because I think the most influential person I know is probably Matt Chandler, who I wrote the book with, because he has such a prominent voice in our culture. And people all the time will tell me they listened to a Chandler sermon or they had a Chandler conversation or they read a Chandler book. That's influence, right? People line up and, and you get to lead them. And I would say that Matt has had a profound impact on my life, certainly. Uh, but he's probably the most influential person, I think, that I know. But I would say the most influential person in my life is my wife. My wife has impacted me significantly. Even this morning, I, I woke up two hours before my alarm, which is not atypical for me. Unfortunately, I have trouble sleeping. And I was just thinking about my wife and how good a gift she has been to me, how intolerant of anything less than following God she would be. If we said, hey, I know God asked us to do this, but let's do this instead, there'd be absolutely no question. Whatever the ramifications, we're following God. And the way that she leads in our family, the way that she leads at work, she is brilliant. She is hilarious. She is beautiful. She is wonderful. And she has had a profound impact on the way I think about myself and the way I think about my life. So my wife is by far the most influential mm, person. That's good. Great answer. Thank you. All right. What book or podcast would be top of your list for us? Uh, you know, it's a book that I don't hear many people talk about anymore. It's from the 1800s. It's called training the 12 training or the training of the 12. And it's by a, a, a Scottish professor named A.B. Bruce. There was a professor at DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary back in the day, Howard Hendricks, and he used to go through this book with uh, his students when he was discipling them. And I heard him mention that once and I picked it up. He said he had read it for the 40th time. I've probably now read it. I bet I've read it 10 times, maybe 12 times. It's a harmony of the gospel, which means he takes the four gospels and he lines up the stories from the gospel in chronological order, mixing together the gospels specifically the stories of Jesus Christ training his disciples on how to be leaders. And then he takes that. If you've ever read The Master Plan for Evangelism, that book is a condensed version of this book. If you read the forward to The Master Plan of Evangelism, he says, I took Training of the Twelve and I condensed it into a book that's more accessible because this is written in 1800s language. And so training of the Training of the Twelve, I refer to it all the time. I've got three or four copies of it in my office right now. I've discipled men through it. I love the book. It's not perfect. It's not the Bible, but it is It is um, constantly looking at, this is what Jesus was trying to train his disciples to do as he was making them leaders. 
And it's so insightful and helpful. I love that. That's book. great. Excellent. And the master plan of evangelism is one of my top, top favorite books. So it's good. Have you ever read training? I of the have 12? not. You need to go check it out. I think you'll, you'll read it and you go, Oh, no wonder this guy wrote master plan for evangelism. He was like, what if I could take a really good idea and make it like accessible to mm -hmm. a lot of people? And uh, it's, it's excellent. All right. Last question. What's the greatest lesson in, about leadership that you have learned? Uh, that's a good question for us as, uh, our elders at our church have a motto. It's a Latin motto. It's praesis ut prosis, ne ut in Paris, which means lead in order to serve, not in order to command or to rule. And that whole idea is, is the best leadership lesson I've learned. We'll say often prosis ut praesis, or I'll say it, it means serve in order to lead. But in order to lead in the church or in order to lead in your family and definitely in some business mindset as well, in order to lead well, you have to be the first to serve. You have to be able to say, I'm not going to ask you to do anything that I wouldn't do. I will sacrifice myself before I'll sacrifice you. And I will lead in order to serve you. It's biblical. It's the way we see Jesus lead. He leads by serving. And he also sets the example by serving. But if I want to think about how do I lead my home, then I think about what does my home need? And how do I meet that need? That's service. If I think about my employees, I go, what do my employees need? And how do I achieve that for them? That is serving them. And so leading by serving is the best lesson I have learned. It's a, it's a biblical lesson. It's why I think Jesus calls leaders shepherds and overseers. Because shepherds are people that, yeah, they show the sheep which way to go. And they lead in the front. That's what a shepherd does is the sheep follow him. They lead from the front. There are other animals that you lead by standing behind them and driving them and making them go a direction. But a shepherd leads out front, and a shepherd is willing, he says, uh, when he says he's a good shepherd, he says he's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. When David says, I can go out and fight Goliath, he says, look, because as a shepherd, I fought lions, I fought bears, and if one of them got one of my sheep, I'd grab him by the beard, and I'd strike him until he was dead. And they were like, okay, you've got shepherd experience. We are ready to have you fight the giant. But I, I think that's the best lesson I have is not that you're necessarily heroic in the sense of uh, admiration, you're heroic in your efforts at serving. And so I go back to Spurgeon's lectures to his students. I go back to, which is about being a pastor and the training of the 12 and the gospels. I go, man, those are the best lessons I've learned is how to serve, how to think of yourself as a servant as a leader. And the higher you get in the organization, the more you need to be ready to, to be lowly and gentle. Yeah. Adam, how can we pray for you and your family? <clears throat> well, uh, like I said, my wife turns 40 this week. Let's pray that we have a fantastic uh, 40th year for life in the days and years ahead. I'd love, um, I would love to live long enough to see my grandkids come to Christ. So that's going to involve hopefully my kids coming to Christ and then my grandkids coming to Christ. And then I want to, Ray Ortland said this to me, and I love it. I want to die with my integrity intact. Pray that I would just be a faithful man, protected from, led not into temptation, delivered from evil. That's what mm -hmm. I want. Good. All right. Let me pray now. God, I thank you and praise you for Adam and his family. I thank you for his wife and the birthday coming up. I pray that you would allow that celebration just to be sweet and for them to uh, to really en enjoy uh, one another and just the years that, uh, that you have given them. 
Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, be with Adam and his church. I pray that you would guide him and direct him uh, as he leads and that you would uh, help him to lead his family well so that his he can uh, see his grandkids come to you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in his life, in his family's life. I pray that you would help us to learn from this episode and that you would speak through it and use it to uh, convict us, to draw us closer to you and help us to live our lives for you. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Thank, thank you, you for coming on the Kingdom Investor Podcast and thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next time. What if you could take your generosity to the next level? impacting more lives in your community and around the world, creating a godly legacy for generations to come. Now you can. Your first step is crafting your kingdom investing thesis. Reserve your spot in our next online workshop where we guide you through the process of discovering your passions, create a strategic plan, and connect you to opportunities that will help you fulfill your God-given calling as a kingdom investor. Register today by clicking the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next time for another episode of the Kingdom Investor Podcast.